Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine, and I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. It's my turn. I picked a random story. It is called Snow, and it is by a writer named Dale Bailey. And the section I'm going to read is probably halfway through. They checked the house, throwing deadbolts, locking interior doors and windows. Karen's didn't get the windows. You wanted to get inside bad enough, you just broke the glass. Yet there was something comforting in sliding the little tongue into its groove all the same. Symbolic barriers, like cavemen drawing circles of fire against the night. As for sleep, forget it. He leaned against the sofa, draped in his sleeping bag, envying Felicia, the oblivion of the oxycodone. Her skin was hot to the touch, greasy with perspiration. He could smell, or imagined he could smell, the putrescent wound, the inadequate dressing soaked with gore. Across the room sat Lanyon, the Benelli flat across his legs. At the window, her back propped against the wall, Natalie cradling the pistol in her lap. Karen's felt naked, with just the hunting knife at his belt. The snow kept coming, slanting down past the street lamp, painting the room with that strange swimming light. Lanyon's face looked blue and cold, like the face of a dead man. Natalie's too, and he didn't even want to think about Felicia burning up under the covers, sweating out the fever of the infection. We should look at her leg, he said. And do what, Natalie responded. And what could he say to that? Because there was nothing to do. Karen's knew that as well as anyone. Yet he felt compelled in his impotence to do something, anything, even if it was just stripping back the sleeping bag and staring at the wounds, stinking and inflamed, imperfectly splinted, oozing blood and yellow pus. Just keep doling out those drugs, Lanyon said. And Karen's knew he meant the oxycodone, not the amoxicillin, which couldn't touch an infection of this magnitude, however much he prayed. And he was not a praying man. He couldn't help recalling his mother dying in agony from bone cancer. The narrow hospital room, stinking of antiseptic, with its single forlorn window, the doctor, a hulking Greek, quick to anger, who spoke in heavily accented English. We're into pain management now, he'd said. How much is left, Natalie said, and Karen's realized that he'd been turning the prescription bottle in his hands. Ten, maybe fifteen pills. Not enough, she said. I don't think it's enough. And a bright fuse of hatred for her burned through him, for giving voice to thoughts he could barely acknowledge as his own. After that, silence. Karen's eyes were grainy with exhaustion, yet he could not sleep. None of them could sleep. Unspeaking, they listened for voices in the storm. So I found this story randomly. I don't even know what I was looking for. But when I came across it, I was like, oh, I don't feel like we've done. I think we have done an apocalypse story. I can't remember now. Woodland was kind of an apocalypse story. Yeah, like cli-fi style. But we definitely hadn't done something that I could remember, at least, that felt like this kind of action zombie horror. And this is like a story that we're all so familiar with. I was surprised that it hadn't come up yet. And also there's so many films, you know, we've, we've all seen a million iterations of this, especially in theaters that I was like, Oh, this will be kind of fun. He's got some great style in here too. Yeah. While you're reading, I I only just noticed that his eyes were grainy with exhaustion. And I hadn't noticed that when I read it the first time, but grainy with exhaustion is such an interesting phrase. I really like it. Yeah, I thought for as common as this type of story is, I still felt like his is one that I could probably, if you reminded me of it, I would say, oh, the one with the leg wound and like the critters. It's almost impossible when when I read a story like this or watch a movie like this, not to compare it to every other version that I've seen. But that's like what I find myself doing. And here, at least I thought, okay, this kind of stood on its own. It it tried to do something unique. And uh, when we linked 
link to the story, there will be a link that you can click on through the same page where you click like an author spotlight. There's a Q&A with him. And so he talks about what he hoped to achieve with this story. And I don't think it's ruining it to say that he wanted not just to focus on, this is obviously his genre, right? Like these kinds of horror stories, but he wanted to focus on a situation where like aliens have invaded Earth or whatever, and it's an apocalypse and the end times are all banding together to survive. And what he wanted to focus in on was how situations like that probably drive people to make like horrific decisions and kind of reveal the character. So that's the strength of a short story. Okay. I'm going to jump ahead to my takeaway now. I think (laughs) when we tell ourselves that we're going to write something as ambitious as an apocalyptic novel, which means breaking a world so thoroughly that you almost have to create it first and then destroy it, but you have to destroy it in a really special way. And there's got to be creatures and there's got to be like all these, I don't know. I feel like when I hear about a movie that's an apocalyptic movie, it's like a three hour film about the end of everything. It's like, shouldn't it just be fade to black right away after five minutes? But they, <laughs> they seem to be so like grandiose and like sweeping and like big picture. And and the only way to kind of uh, portray that there is nothingness is to like pull back and show you the entire world of nothingness. These stories often like cover lots of ground and miles. So you can continue to prove to your viewer that there's nothing, there's nothing for miles. And then to see a short story decide, well, I can't accomplish all of that. I can introduce the feel of an apocalypse so quickly. We talk about this with like war movies and war stories. As soon as you say World War II, I fill in the blanks. As soon as you say apocalypse, my brain fills in the blanks. So with that knowledge, knowing that you don't have to create and break and destroy and show me the world, just say that it's the apocalypse. I gotcha. And then you can like zoom in and write a very short story that is in the context of an apocalypse, but it's really about how quickly you'll stab and kill your wife when shit goes south. And then it becomes a pretty powerful short story. That's what a short story does, right? Focuses on that instead of the premise or the setting, whatever it is. It's like the apocalypse is the wrapper. It's not the story. Since we're jumping to the end, let me talk about the ending based on what you just said. (laughs) Because, you know, the ending part is the crux of the story, right? It's like the decision he's forced, like you said in his interview. That's that's exactly what I took out of it. It's like, this is, he's being driven to this insane decision to stab her. My only, uh, I thought this was just beautifully done throughout. I, um, it was carried along. Everything sang. This was a greatly, like a wonderful written story the only thing that i wish he had done is i wish he had spelled out that scene where he stabbed her a little in a little more gruesome detail because i think that the moral implications of what he's doing and the cost of what he's to himself of what he's doing are the heart of it are what's important here and so even if it's just watching him stab her watching her her life fade out of her eyes you know her grip on his arm or like soften as, as she dies or something so that we can see it more clearly you know, it doesn't have to be six more pages. It just like two sentences that just show us that moment a little more, I think could have like really hit that much harder. And that's, that's a small little, little detail, but it's a big moment. And I, I would like to, I'd like to see it more. I mean, we can imagine it obviously. And when we do. Obviously, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to read that section because I knew it was quick, but then I just pulled it up again and it's like too quick. You're right. So it's like a tense scene where like the little alien critters are definitely about to like bust in the house and already have and Felicia's 
immobile on the ground and they're all running for the Yukon. She says, don't leave me, Dave. Felicia sobbed, don't leave me. Outside, the Yukon roared to life. The rules have changed. We have to watch out for ourselves now. That's something he's thinking. Dave, Felicia said, I'm scared. God help him. He didn't want to die. Shh, he said, brushing closed her eyelids with his fingers. Never, I'll never leave you. I love you. He bent to press his lips to hers. His fingers fumbled at his belt. They closed around the blade. A moment later, he was running for the Yukon. So you're right. We know exactly what happens. But yeah, it's not just the decision to kill her. The decision to kill her is is almost like the most simple conclusion if you admit that she's going to die one way or the other. It's exigent, right? It's a matter of the situation, right? Yeah, like (laughs) that has to to happen. Doing it is the the hard part. Right, exactly. So doing it is what we don't, what we didn't get to see. And the reason it's difficult is because of her reaction. He's already processed that he's going to lose his wife. He's already processed too that he has to do this thing. But we didn't get to see her struggle with that realization that's going to haunt him. It's not doing it that's going to haunt him. It's like the betrayal on her face, right? It's the horror or like just the, I don't know what it would have been, like her understanding or recognizing or realizing what he just decided to do because there's nothing from her throughout. She's literally just this like, rotting corpse of a character and like (laughs) yeah she's got like this refrain where she's like i don't want to die i don't want to die i don't want to die i'm scared i don't want to die she doesn't say anything like you should let me go you should kill me like i'm the weakest one she has like almost no concept and maybe it's like her feverish state because she her body is like raging with this infection but she's just like a singular note and like he has thoughts about what his wife means to him but we don't really get to see her as having thought through any of this so like that would have been a moment too to see her kind of come to life (laughs) you said refrain like she has that constant like i don't want to die don't leave me which is really important part of what you read to reach the ending is kind of this accumulation of all the different refrains and motifs that have been building up through this thing like early on natalie says something like um the rules have changed we have to watch out for ourselves now and that keeps coming back in his thoughts and um she says don't leave me dave don't leave me and she said that before and is and will keep saying that even the the line god help him he didn't want to die had occurred like a little while before that so all of these these refrains are different like kind of arguments that are coming to a boil for that moment like he doesn't want to die natalie keeps saying the rules have changed Felicia says, don't leave me, but he has to face her and like, you know, he knows she's dying. And, um, and then just the way that he wrote that leading up to the moment of decision with all those refrains kind of boiling over and like every other line was one of those, they gained so much meaning and so much weight and so much importance that as you're skimming through them, you feel all of that coming to a head in that final moment, which is why we know what happens. Right. I think that was really remarkably well done. It's part of that probably part of that as a horror writer he's used to like building up to this really big kind of horrific you know moment and that, that kind of writing kind of helps uh, get you there but that was so well done with all the different motifs that keep coming back i really like that yeah the part about like the rules have changed i don't know if you remember this from reading it but natalie when she's introduced is introduced like as uh lanyon or his new girlfriend natalie life and blonde and empty-headed yep. as the last player in his rotating cast of female Companions. I thought that so I'm I'm reading this thinking she's a ditzy blonde. By the end, she's the one carrying a gun telling this guy to kill his wife. She's the most level-headed out of all of them. She's the one whose words are like the worm in his brain. He can't get him out of his head. He's like, she's such an idiot. She's such an idiot. I'm like, no, she's not. 
she's wielding a weapon. You're over here, like pussyfooting around this choice. Yeah. Natalie's been like kind of a bitch about it. She's been really direct, but I thought it was an interesting kind of twist there for us to know that he thinks nothing of her. And she's like basically calling the shots. Oh yeah. Later on, he says um, he's thinking about their situation. He's like, uh, my friend is a venture capitalist. I'm a college professor and she's what a Broncos cheerleader who even knew what Natalie did. Yeah. I don't know. I, I got a writer that wins awards like this and you know knows his genre probably has something to say about natalie but but i kind of read it and i was like i can't tell if, if how much he thought about natalie or not because the narrator bar- or the you know karen's doesn't give a damn about her but she's like probably making the most decisions like throughout she's the one saying like there's not enough medicine why would you look at her leg yeah she's she drives it a lot and she um makes the most sense in certain interesting ways when she says the line that keeps coming back the rules have changed natalie had said we have to think of ourselves now his immediate response is fuck you natalie karen said and that had been the <laughs> end of the conversation it's like he didn't have an answer he kind of knew she was right and he yeah. didn't want to f- admit it and that's you know yeah. it haunts him he never has an answer to that until finally at the last moment he finally says she's right and you know yes. we get where we are but it is interesting the story is is all about the present action we get glimpses at the past kind of like you know the current relationships are established and kind of explained with little these little glimpses like the roots of those relationships are kind of hinted at like I was the best man at your wedding and this kind of stuff. Or you were the best man at my wedding. And then later Lanyard says, Lanyard? I know. It's like Lanyon. Lanyon. Lanyon says, I've known him forever. And I know, you know, I've known her forever and him even longer or something like that. So the, their current relationships are kind of defined by those past things, but the current action is highlighting their current personalities and their current character and who they are in this moment. We, we're not, we don't care so much about what they were like back then, you know, because this is like a sharp break. As you said, we've broken the world. It's like, this is the apocalypse. You are no longer those people. This is who you are now. So we can kind of like get a sense of who they might have been and kind of this history, but it's not that important. So it doesn't need to be layered in so heavily the way a lot of short story writing where, you know, the whole front third of a story is this backstory that kind of gives you who the character is. We just jump right into this situation and we get glimpses of the past, but the main thrust of the story is who are these people at this moment? And so the glimpse of Natalie's past is like, who is she? Who knows who she is? But what she's doing right now is super important. Yeah. When I reread the beginning just now to to find the intro for Natalie, I, I was surprised because I didn't realize, I didn't remember that we jump into the story after Felicia's leg has been broken. Like the first sentence is about like how she's already like, passed out from the pain and then he goes into that brief flashback of like how she broke her leg so yeah he doesn't even like start with the leg breaking and the leg breaking you could argue even knowing that the apocalypse is like unfolding while they're on this trip the leg breaking is the impetus for the story but he doesn't start with that he starts after that he starts with the drama the drama is they're in the yeah. house and they're being surrounded and she needs to die. What are they going to do? Or no, she's she's dying and she's a hindrance to them escaping. That's the, mm-hmm. the drama of the story. 
And then that leads to the moment of decision. What is he going to do? So he starts there and then flashes back to how did they get there? Right. So it's like these other stories we talked about in a recent episode where they all take place in one cohesive scene and you kind of reach for backstory out of that scene. So, you know, the first paragraph is this is where they're taking shelter. They're hiding out and Felicia's passed out from the pain. Now, let me tell you how they got here. Then we're back into that house and this is what happens. So he's, you know, he's a consummate storyteller. He knows exactly where the drama is. He knows exactly where to start. Right. And like to your point, when the premise is as familiar as the apocalypse, like you should lean into that so that we don't have to do all this throat clearing to get to the drama. You only have so many words and you only have my interest for so long. So if you're going to write about something so common, like you got to set yourself apart. So start as soon as you can. And then I think too, in a story like this where... I mean, it sounds like it's written over the course of like a day or two, you know, like the scene itself is like a day or two because she they, they like fall asleep. So it's like hard to know how much how many hours are actually passing. I feel like it's one night, but yeah, it's, it's hard to tell. Yeah. You know, it's quick. It's not like a week and it's not like an afternoon, but there is some stuff in the backstory where you can tell by telling it in backstory. The other advantage is that we don't have to go through the entire trek down the mountain, which would have taken in a couple hours and like we didn't have to start there and and then take all you all the way down you just got to kind of summarize that and you similarly didn't have to go through all of the logistics of like how they got her from a to b after she broke her leg and i don't know you, you can cut out so much stuff that otherwise people when they're telling a story chronologically sometimes get hung up on right or yeah. that sometimes as a reader can be jarring if you skip like if you tell us some backstory i'm absorbing the information knowing I'm getting it in summary versus expecting it to unfurl in a certain pace and for me to get to see everything. It's like, oh no, he's telling me what to pay attention to and I don't need to worry about those logistics. That's not the story. The story is them in the house and the aliens are coming. Yeah. And you also get to revisit things twice. Like the first time he told us how Felicia tripped, she like stumbled in the the field of scree, broke her leg. That's enough. Later on, he revisits that and says, he remembers how he laughed at her when she fell. And then she said, and that like plaintive kind of I'm really hurt and that this is going to haunt him and then he keeps revisiting that that moment it's another one of those refrains but because it's flashback because it's um it springs out of the current action what his thought processes are he can go back to that moment several times and remember different details and it does if you were telling that chronologically all those details would have to be in that first moment which yeah like you said it can slow it down yeah yeah this thing flies this story flies it goes so fast oh yeah I usually, like I said, when I'm like scrambling to find a story and I'm just like Googling around free short stories online until I find something that I like, I usually will read like a couple paragraphs and I can tell like whether or not I want to finish it. And then I'll usually send it to you. But for this one, I was just kind of like, I don't even know where this is going. And I remember I like just read the whole thing and then sent it to you. Like I pretty much knew I was going to send it to you, but I also was like engrossed by the story itself. So I just like finished it. I was like, wow, yeah, that went really fast. There's such good style in here. Yeah. Um, There's this little section I want to read, but I don't, I can't read the M dashes, right? So yeah, I love this little section. uh, It starts, the glitter of shattering glass splintered the air. Felicia screamed a short, sharp bark of terror. Shut her up, Natalie snapped. And in the silence that followed in the shifting purple shadow of the great room with its sectional sofa and the gray rectangle of the flat screen and their sleeping bags, like the shucked skins of enormous snakes upon the floor, Karen's heard someone, something. Let's play a game. The game is called What If. Test the privacy lock of a back bedroom, a slow turn to either side. Click, click, silence. Felicia whimpered. 
Karen's blew a cloud of vapor into the still air. He clutched Felicia's fingers. I don't know, just the way those sentences interrupt one another. Glass shatters, something's jiggling the doorknob, and all this stuff is happening at the same moment. Right. This is a lot of fun. (laughs) Yeah. And as a writer, you know, what is the distinction between poetry and prose? You know, like line breaks kind of signify poetry in certain ways, but this is playing with line breaks. There's a poetry to the way you put these together, the way you stagger paragraphs and break into lines with M dashes and do all this kind of stuff. It almost like that section that you read in a film, we'd be seeing things and hearing things right at the same time that serve as these interruptions. Like we would see one part of action, but like hear something in the background and like to accomplish that all in prose probably means either being like creative with grammar or like sentence structure and length and things. And so it's interesting to, to play with it that way. And then, but then you also think of like the same type of film being written in like uh what do they call it like when it's not dialogue on a film script it's like a stage direction or whatever else they call that stage direction is all is sometimes written that way like it's it's some of the most sparse writing ever like the first time i wrote like a film treatment i remember someone saying like your stage direction is too good like you're spending too much you know and i was like well good point because nobody's ever going to read this they're only ever going to see it like i'm describing it for the director not for the viewer so that was a bummer but uh it's it's usually well done when it is sparse because it, it accomplishes something similar to what we're describing here, which is that you have to very succinctly and quickly tell the cast and crew what is happening all at once. And it would probably read something like that, where it's like glass breaks, this happens, this person says this. And it would be like this like staccato punctuation, like just like straight down the center of the page. And um, to read it in prose, like you said, you have to be like really clever. And it, it is almost like poetry. That's, yeah, that's a good uh, section to point out. You know, think about this on film so he's talking to felicia and she's saying just don't leave me here she said don't leave me here to die he says never so if you're thinking about a film cameras on them maybe it's a two shot maybe it's cutting back and forth between them and then the glitter of shattering glass splintered the air felicia screamed do you cut to the window breaking or do you just hear it and then she screams and then shut her up natalie snapped is it like a whip pan is it a cut is it like a push in like there's all kinds of camera moves you can do to do this as you're doing the pros you know, there's millions of different ways to do that too. Here, he breaks it up with an M dash, but another writer might choose to have a period there, a short, sharp bark of terror, period. Shut her up, Natalie snap. And instead of M dash and in the silence, like it was an interrupted sentence, you could just say capital I in the silence that followed. These choices are, there's thousands, there's millions, there's uncountable ways to present these things. Yeah. And so that's the fun of it. That's the playing around right. in it and figuring it out. I feel like, you know, in the workshop, I really wish we could spend more time. Uh, nobody really wants this to happen, but <laughs> when I write, I, I'll sit and think about like that kind of thing for 15 minutes before I write it down. Like, how do I want to do this little section? And maybe it's a waste of time at, at the end, but, you know, we could talk about those things in the workshop. Like, why break the paragraph here? Why not break it there? Why not use, you know, an M dash here, a capital here, whatever it is? You know, there's all kinds of things we could talk about, which is a good thing we don't because you'd spend an eternity going over every story. Well, yeah, if we can't agree on the on the overall, like, you know, premise or character ending, I I would uh, (laughs) be reluctant to bring it down to the M dash level. But yeah, yeah. 
I know what you mean. And and this is the kind of discussion though that is perfect for like high level writing with like you and one other nerd friend that are like super into your story. You think it's perfect, but you know it needs a little polish or you're about to like submit it. And like these are definitely the kinds of decisions that high level editors recognize as having been difficult decisions or intentional choices. And they are like that level of polish, but it requires what you just said, which is that attention to detail. You don't accidentally write a scene that way. You don't just do it your first draft either. So it's absolutely worth like investigating at that level. It's not fun to do it in a group. So you're right about the workshop, but (laughs) it's not because it's not worth discussing or because it's boring. It's because you can never get 15 people to agree. Oh yeah. You just want 15 readers to read a scene like Dale Bailey's just then and say, that was, that was cool. Not why did he do it that way? Just like, Oh my God, it worked. It worked. It worked. Yeah. I've seen this attributed to several different, in several places attributed to different people, but I've heard um, people say, you know, when a story is done is when you, in one pass, you take out a bunch of commas and the next one you put them all back in. It's like, okay, you're probably done. You're probably done. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Where you start like doing and undoing your work and by the end, like nobody can tell what difference any of it made. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of already like touched, like I said, on my takeaway. Is there anything else you want to point out about this one though? My takeaway is kind of an accumulation of everything I've said is this is such a good story. That's just, it's so much action. It's an action driven story that has a great character moment at the end um, that builds to that culminating decision at the end. So there's a lot to learn and how that's structured and how I could rip this apart and figure and just apply that as a template to lots of different story kinds of stories. Yeah. Well, just to summarize, like what I said, it was basically that when you have this many like familiar footholds, I guess, for a reader at play to your advantage, you can do what short work does well, which is just zoom in on the crux of the story. So we know it's an apocalypse. We know it's action packed. We know there's aliens and it's desolate. And we understand the dangers of a snowstorm and all these things, right? So he doesn't waste any time telling us any of that, which maybe in your case, you have a situation that we're less familiar with. So you kind of have to do that, whatever, fine. But he doesn't bother with all that stuff. He just starts with the story. And then how you pointed out, he flashes back and short stories just zero in. They go right to the short story. This could be a novel if he wanted it to be. He didn't want it to be, right? There's a ton for a novel. We could have spent a whole like 50 pages getting down the mountain with them, but we didn't because we didn't need to because that's not the point. The point is for him to think about how situations like this make us make terrible decisions. And so he hones right in on the decision and everything that he includes is only for the purposes of building the stakes of that decision, you know? So we don't have to waste all this time. He doesn't even tell us what the aliens fucking look like, which I was pissed about. Just vague kind of impressions. Yeah. I'm like, listen, you don't need a CGI budget. You can just tell us. Some films don't show you because they can't make them. You can tell us. And if you didn't, that always bothers me. Anyway, yeah, he just goes straight to the crux of it which is i gotta kill my wife should i though all right thanks guys if you enjoyed this episode consider subscribing to our monthly newsletter at our website napleswritersworkshop.com and for daily writing tips industry news and great short fiction join our facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash naples writers workshop